Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Production Incorporated. I am co-host Connor McNamara Stratton, and with my good friend Jack Rossiter Munley, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking, and you have a spare minute, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I'm at Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack Rossiter Munn. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. And our website, where you can find all our past episodes, is closetalking.com. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are greeting you today in lovely February, although currently it is January. Time, as my wonderful mom recently said, is amorphous. And as such, close talkings, recording practices reflect such a blob-like relationship to time it's like doctor who said it's a wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing that's a famous <laughs> thing right at the when you started talking it sounded a little bit like you were doing your yates impression oh god oh geez <laughs> i was wondering if that was a direction we were headed in early in the episode <laughs> if i'm leading with a yates impression you gotta cut me right off the air i mean that's I can end with it sometimes if it's justified, but like, no, I can't start with it. That's yeah, that's unacceptable, inappropriate. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Let's save there the good go. stuff for the last five miles. Don't want to hit the go. wall. Exactly. But yeah, we've got a wonderful poem for you today. As always, the poem is called Family Ties. It's by the poet Diana Koi Wen. Uh, the poem comes from her collection Ghost Of, uh, which was a, I believe it came out in 2018. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. It won the Kate Tufts Discovery Award, I believe. And it's a really remarkable book. And we'll get more into all of that after we read it. Um, one bit of like context that might be helpful and a bit of a content warning um, is the book and also the poem um, revolves in some way around her brother uh, died by suicide and the book is sort of grappling with that uh, and this poem is to a certain extent as well so just thought I would mention that before before reading it this is family ties by Diana Coy Wen Gradually, a girl's innocence itself becomes her major crime. A doe and her two fawns bent low in the sumac along the bank of a highway, 
the pinched peach of their ears twitching in the heat. Into the disordered evening, my brother cut out only his face from every photograph in the hall, carefully slipping each frame back into position. What good does it do? Decades of no faces other than our own chipping faces. What good does it do? This resemblance to nothing we know of the dollhouse. New parents watch their newborn resting in a sunny patch of an empty room. The newborn making sense of its container. And from the road, a deer ripened in death and a tuft of fur or dandelion tumbled along, gently circled, driftwood, shaking loose, gathered, dissolving into the mouths of jewelweed nearby. Earth is rife with iron and blood is rich in stardust. Immediately, I spotted one hoof print, then nothing, as if this was where she dragged herself out of the body, strips of tire torn from their orbit. Is it right then that we are left to hurdle alone? Oof. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, this is an intense one. Very. It's an intense book, too. It is, yeah. And it's a book, I mean, like, the last line of the poem, I guess we should say, is italicized. The rest is not. And at least for this poem, there isn't any particularly super noteworthy um, concrete aspects to it. But throughout the book, there are a lot of concrete, like, ways that the poems are displayed and a lot of that reflects out of the fact that what is described here, my brother cut out only his face from every photograph in the hall, that's a real event. Her brother actually went through all the family photographs and cut himself out of them a couple of years before he died. And so that's reflected throughout the book in a lot of different ways, but it's like, yeah, it shows up in literally described in, in this poem, but in other poems it's uh, displayed visually in the book. So if you get a chance to, to see the book or uh, look online, there's different media in which like the pages of the book are shown. That is like a whole other level of intensity and power that gets added on to the subject matter and also to the artistry in terms of how she as like a poet, but also just as a creative person was approaching this subject yeah completely it's such a wonderful book and so unlike anything i've really read yeah and it's like one thing that that kind of is recurring is there are these kind of actual images of like family portraits that are kind of printed and then there are these like text that that are sort of visually laid out in the kind of outline of those, you know, pictures, like visually, but then, you know, in the kind of representing the act of cutting out the face. In both the poems, there's this thing that happens a lot where, you know, there's like a gap, a literal gap in the sort of shape of a circle in some of the poems. And actually, if you listen to the Versus podcast interview with 
Diana Coy when she reads one of them that has that. And she, I was like, cause it's so interesting. Cause it's both visually like, you know, striking on the page, but it also, you know, when you're reading it, it's like, it stops in the middle of words sometimes, but she actually like reads it really deliberately in this kind of rhythmic way that I couldn't do justice to. So I really recommend you listen to that. There is a video on the Hours Poetica, O-U-R-S Poetica YouTube channel that is the audio of her reading the poem Triptych, which I think is the poem um, that you're referencing. And they display the text being written out as she reads it. And the combination of the two is really, really striking. And it's interesting to have oftentimes we struggle on this podcast with the fact that it's hard to replicate the physical nature of the poem and the sort of all the things that audio can add to the poetic experience are there but there's also something that can feel like it's lost when you don't see the form and watching that video the way that the form takes on a whole other aspect when you read along with hearing it or when you see it forming as she's reading it is something that I haven't really seen in that way before. And admittedly, partly that's because there aren't a lot of places where poems are displayed that way, but it's also because not a lot of poems are constructed the way that she has put together many of the ones that are in this book. And it is incredible. Hearing her alone would be enough, but like seeing it and hearing it simultaneously in that way, whoa, like really whoa no it's true because we often talk i feel like i often harp on like how contemporary poetry is sort of like you know poetry on the page is like this awkward form where it's like meant to be read aloud and it it's like musical and all this stuff but it's like on the page and it's printed and so it's like it's not like a not a purely oral form you know what i mean um, right. And so it, it makes use of the the visual and the kind of the elements of the stanza and line breaks and all that stuff. But she is like using both of those dynamics actually like in a taking what I have often called awkwardness <laughs> and, you know, kind of like making the most out of its potential to be like occupying um, those spaces because also a lot of times like visual sometimes visual poems you know poems that that use the space in that kind of way are hard to read aloud too and what is so striking is that it's both kind of intensely musical and intensely visual and there's actually you know so Terence Hayes the poet Terence Hayes like selected the poem for the, I guess it was like Omnidon Press's prize. I just found what he said about it to kind of resonate. You know, amazing poetry happens inside visual innovations where, quote, there is nothing that is not music. The pouring of water from one receptacle into another, a coat of bees draped over the sack of sugar caving in and on itself. You know, poetry is found in the gaps, silences and ruptures of history. These poems mean to make a song of emptiness in the spaces we house. They sing to and for the ghosts of identity, exile, and history. They sing like a ghost who looks from the window or waits by the door. Lyric fills in the holes in the story. Ghost of is unforgettable. 
which yeah i don't know lyric fills in the holes in the story <laughs> that's uh, such a yeah i mean count on somebody like terence hayes to write such an evocative review <laughs> oh like God, there's a lot of poetry just in that review of the poetry <laughs> i'm like that's something that i i find really captivating about this poem and about the book as a whole as like sort of a cohesive not statement because that's exactly what it's doing so well it's not a statement about something it is an exploration and it's an occurrence you know which i know you've talked about like every poem sort of feeling like it's a happening sometimes mm -hmm. um and i feel like that's very much what's going on in this book and in this poem is you feel that uncertainty and that personal work that's going on in terms of thinking through and trying to represent in some way what this kind of a loss means and it's represented in so many different ways both in presence and in absence and in confusion both in words and in confused images i don't know the the freedom that poetry allows because we've also something we've talked about is how like not every poem has to have a narrative the way that almost every story no matter how disjointed it may be there's usually a narrative of some sort that's kind of what makes it a story you know um, and when you're writing prose it's much harder to break out of those constraints and when you're working in the realm of verse or lyric it creates more white space sometimes literally but always figuratively and in that kind of freedom you find a lot more space for exactly this kind of an exploration of something that is so hard to name and in fact might be unnameable and there's a lot to explore even in that it's that's part of what i find so incredible about the book and certainly this poem yeah no i i really agree there's a grief and trauma and loss and and sort of complex feelings that also you know like get at this one sense of self are not easily contained in narrative sometimes and i and i think poetry can be a place and a shape for you know all of these other kinds of complex feelings um but sort of tidy narrative structures often you know maybe aren't the best suited and so you know at, at the same time there are there are kind of two narratives that are happening here in this poem. And, you know, we often, we sort of <laughs> start off by gushing about the book because it's incredible and so good. But we usually do a kind of play-by-play -play narrative of the poem, just like literally what's happening. And there's kind of like two happenings that are, that are going on. On the one hand, this kind of car crash incident of some kind with deer. So you have like a doe and her two fawns bent low along the bank of a highway, you know, and that kind of like those deer come back periodically over the course of the poem, you know, and from the road, a deer ripened in death and a tuft of fur. Immediately I spotted one hoof print, then nothing, strips of tire torn from their orbit. So that's kind of like one track. And then the other track that alternates is sort of the incident that we were, that is one of the preoccupying themes of the, the whole book, but, you know, is the sort of personal biographical of the speaker and of um, Diana Koi Wen, um, you know, into the disordered evening, my brother cut out only his face from every photograph. And then it's kind of a reflection on 
the consequences in the import of that like what good does it do decades of no other of no faces other than our own stuff like that which already you know any claims uh, i'm making about narrative is not a diss to my uh, narratively oriented people. And there's many complex things that narrative do. So it's just sort of a rough place to get going more to think about the possibilities of poetry rather than the lack of possibilities in narrative. But even as we identify, like I identify those two stories, like the poem never really like joins those stories together. They kind of just happen simultaneously alternating um, and so one of the kind of central moves that the poem is making that I think is like really interesting and complicated is like, basically what's the, what's the relationship between like, what does this dear car incident, you know, have to do with the speaker's like personal story that's being related and thought about in the poem? Like, what is the, the dear dying have to do with the brother dying and also the brother cutting out only his face. And so that's, that's kind of like um, that tension, that kind of like gap between those two things is, yeah, is like really, really interesting. Um, and like one, like, like, so there's family. And so there's, you know, the doe and her two fawns are like, a family unit in some sense. So maybe there's a connection there with the speaker and speaker's own family or something. And then maybe there's, I don't know, this, the, the violence of the scene feels in some way to capture some of the violence of the brother's act in some ways, either the brother's suicide or, but I think more specifically in this poem is the brother's action of cutting out his face. But at the same time, it's not like a clean one-to-one, -one, you know, it's like, you can't say the doe is the brother or something, but you do get this very visceral, like um, intense scene that then feels like it, the feelings of the scene sort of move into, you know, the personal story. The other thing that I think about, you know, in terms of like poetry making space for these complex things is like one part of this poem that like I love so much and that I think is like really interesting and not, I, I feel like not often explored, at least from what I've read is like, so you can have like a metaphor, right? Where you can say the deer is, is a planet and it's orbiting or whatever. And there's a kind of, you're making a relationship between the deer, which is the thing, and then the planet, which is, you know, being compared or love is a rose, da, da, da. And oftentimes in poems, the metaphor is kind of like made explicitly, you know, where it's just like, this is that. And you're like, okay, it's a poem. It's like, I know planets aren't deer, but like I'm running with it. Um, <laughs> And this poem doesn't do that, but it has a kind of metaphorical, what I kind of, here's my metaphor for the metaphorical texture is like, sort of like a web trampoline that's like under the poem. You know, as one example, there's this kind of space 
language that happens in different parts where you have like at the end you have is it right then that we are left to hurdle alone by itself could mean whatever but then strips of tire torn from their orbit okay so then we have orbit like planets orbiting a sun then if we go up and i don't know why i'm doing this in reverse order but we have earth is right with iron and blood is rich in stardust. So then we have stardust and we are getting more of that kind of galactic stuff. Yeah, and then like, then we have this, you know, the deer ripened in death where there's like the circling and the shaking loose and this dissolving, which when you first encounter it, the space language hasn't really like been like brought up sort of properly. But like reading it again, you're like, oh, there's kind of like a, a, the deer has sort of been in this being hit or dying, been like removed from the orbit, right? And then you can think about the title where there's like family ties and you have this sort of, there's the orbit of, a, of, a, of kids to a parent or some kind of like the gravitational pull of family or, or whatever. But there's never a moment where the poem says parents are the sun and kids are the planets and we orbit them or whatever. Rather, there's these kind of like these images that have connotations or feelings associated with their meanings that are like happening, sort of creating this metaphorical underpinning, right? So there's like, stardust orbit hurtling alone which then kind of touches on family ties when you think about it and it's like a, a metaphor of connotation sort of through like repeated associative connections if that makes sense and i feel like yeah this poem does that and it's like it's another way in which the kind of complexities of association and and metaphor, which are like just really open in poetry, can like kind of create this space of experience that a tidy narrative can't sort of as easily do, I think. And so you can kind of bring lots of different unlike things to create this kind of really charged meaning soup um, or something. And I'm just, we're, and you can mix your metaphors and you can do any goddamn shit with it that you want. But, you know, by the end you have like personal story, deer scene, space hurtling metaphor, like all together in this profound, but sort of unclear way. And I think that I feel like that that last like is it right then that we were left to hurdle alone? It's just so devastating. You just think about like like a planet that that gets off or a moon or an asteroid or whatever that loses the orbit and then is just in the vast universe by itself and like that's the experience that the speaker has either because of what the brother has has either losing her brother or just being in this family by the nature of being in this family you're just hurtling alone 
yeah, like any one piece of that would only get some of that feeling. Um, and it's like really, I don't know. So it's, it's like, cause there's, it's like this bloody deer scene. And then also this space, like cold isolation, um, that's like paired together and yeah, it's like really intense. Um, but just, I don't know. It's like, it's astounding to me. Definitely. And it is, yeah, it's really intense. And exactly what you're talking about, it does become sort of this meaning soup because the degree to which you can pull out these narrative threads, they very much do not fit together naturally as you're reading through the poem the first time. At least they didn't for me. And I could tell that they were in conversation with each other, but I had to work pretty hard to figure out how they were bouncing off of each other in a way that made any sense to me. Even knowing kind of what the poem's project was, it took a few reads to kind of order them into a reasonable conversation with each other. And some of that is, I think, deliberate confusions between them. So you have this instance where you're talking about the deer, right? So it, it goes from the girl almost immediately into the deer, and then it goes to the brother, but then you get into the middle of the poem and you have this line, new parents watch their newborn resting in a sunny patch of an empty line break room, the newborn making sense of its container. And that line break for me, when I start reading that line, I think I'm back with the deer because when I hear that there's a newborn, that's not a human word that we use. We usually just say baby. We don't say that you're with your newborn unless you're reading like very baby specific literature. That's usually a term more reserved for the natural world. And then I find out, oh, no, it's it's actually taking place in a room and particularly going from newborn to resting in a sunny patch. It's like, no, they're, they're resting in a crib or something like not even if it's in the sun. That's not the primary thing that you talk about because they're indoors like it's <laughs> it's sunny, but it's you know, I'm looking I'm thinking meadows here. OK, like this is in a, a woodland glade of some sort. But no, it turns out those new parents are human parents, not deer parents. But very shortly after that, the newborn making sense of its container, boom, and from the road, a deer ripened in death. And so it does jump you right back into the deer after that, which is really interesting because it's kind of preparing you for the jump back to the deer by introducing this language, but also injects this little bit of confusion the first time you're reading through, at least for me, where I was like already back with the deer before I'm then back with the family before I actually go back to the deer. And... What happens for me there, and I love the focus you put on some of the celestial language because it creates this idea of family as this incredibly naturally occurring thing. Deer have families, humans have families all around the natural world. You can see this gravitational natural pull, which looks different in all different species and some eat their young and, and all kinds of like it's complicated because it's nature. <laughs> But like family as an idea exists and even a lot of the language that's used for families has natural world corollaries outside of just human society. So you can even have something like the nuclear family partially came out of the nuclear era, but that's also about literal elements on the periodic table. There are nuclear elements that have protons and neutrons that spin around in the atoms and it's just like another level of this kind of natural world, natural family thing. 
And that tension that is then brought up at the end is exactly what you're describing. It's that competition that's always happening between the gravitational pull and the centripetal force of orbit. Like that is a constant natural world tension that's happening. And you feel that in the poem, how connected versus how hard is the pull away? And I feel like that comes through in a couple different places. But yeah, especially at the end, uh, strips of tire torn from their orbit. Is it right then that we are left to hurtle alone? Which is like, yeah, that line lands so hard because I don't know. It's it it feels like it is a line in which it's focusing on the cosmic stuff, but it feels like it's the place where that cosmic stuff really fully meets the project of the poem to examine grief and examine family like that is that is big time stuff and i feel like even like some of the lines like specific lines even will have confusion or reverse orders baked into them you have earth is rife with iron and blood is rich in stardust normally that would be reversed like blood has iron in it and earth is made out of star stuff you know, that would feel like a more natural pairing of those ideas. But reversing them gives you this whole other world of meaning possibilities that crash into that next line that is about, you know, immediately I spotted one hoof print, then nothing, as if this was where she dragged herself out of the body. And then that line that came before, you're not necessarily thinking about, you know, all the blood that's in the pavement and it's seeping into the dirt it's like a whole other kind of you know what magic is in the blood like blood ties family ties the stardust the gravitational connections of family in you know someone's blood it begins opening up this whole other world of meaning beyond just tying in some cosmic ideas it's doing a lot of other work when it's reversed in order like that yeah and then it by following that line which i love that you point that out it was it's such such a striking line earth is ripe with iron and blood is rich in stardust it almost like comes out of nowhere it's such a pronouncement too tonally you know but then yeah to like to sort of introduce those kind of like animal earth human stardust those connections and then move from that kind of setting all that up to immediately I spotted one hoof print then nothing as if this was where she dragged herself out of the body and then strips of tire torn from their orbit and so we like we get these different severances where there's the dying of the deer and the kind of like soul or the self of the deer sort of leaving finally from the body and in some ways like like the orbit of the body or you know the pull of the body or something uh and then strips of tire torn from their orbit you you can imagine literally you know say it's like a car hitting a deer which we don't totally know because that's not stated but which is interesting itself just because that's another like presence of absence kind of situation you don't yeah. hear that explicitly happening, but you intuit it the same way that 
if someone's family picture is missing an individual, you can intuit that it was cut out, whether it was by that person or someone else. Like you still know it was cut out when you see a picture with someone cut out of it. And that's like, something's happening here. Yeah, no, exactly. And then, and then you, by like sort of intuiting that, then you get the image of the car swerving and then the car hurtling. And then the car is like its own container of a, of a speaker maybe. And then the speaker is encountering this thing, but then, so, but it's like, it's, it's all of these different violent collisions that are resulting in the removing of, you know, cause the car is like tied to the road in some kind of way. And so when you see the, the tire marks like swerving off, it's, it's, it's leaving its, its pull. And you can see it so vividly because it's such like an iconic image, especially in just like, you know, it's like if you're watching a movie or a show and you just see like a road with <laughs> swerving tire tracks, you're like, fuck, someone's been killed. <laughs> and, you, you know, you know, like it's so in that setting, it's like so cliche, but because of its visibility, like adding it in there it just, it's able to do a lot of work. But then also when you reread the poem, because the first line is like sort of strange at first, I think, like gradually a girl's innocence becomes her major crime where it's like, I don't know, like what is the crime basically? And then by the end, maybe you can deduce that there's this sense of like a girl's innocence. It's like, like, I feel like I begin to see that the speaker is sort of wrestling with could I have done, which is sort of a classic sort of thing when it's it's the topic of, of suicide is like, is there anything I could have done? Or like, could I have seen it coming? I mean, all of those impulses are are sort of natural, but also like often like an unfair burden to put on oneself. But you can see how the innocence, which also has such a, you know, and there's such a gendered, like a girl's innocence becomes her major crime, like component to it. But like in the beginning, it's like, oh, I had no idea that, you know, he was feeling this way or whatever. But then over time, and then, you know, kind of like, I think you had mentioned this, but um, to me earlier, that there is an interview, like the photos are like still in the house like in actual life without. So, so yeah, there's a know, lot. I don't know if they still are right now, but at the time of that interview, which was after the suicide, yeah, the, the photos stayed up in the house with the image removed from them, which is like a whole bunch of stuff. And, and in that interview, she talks about, you know, what the family can and cannot express with each other. Right. And, and we'll link that interview and everything. But yeah, that becomes such a big part of it is like, yeah, what, what is the word innocence containing there? Is it willful unseeing? Is it more akin to an ignorance? And why is the accusation kind of coming back on, on the speaker? It feels like a little bit where, you know, naming that as a major crime feels like a really big and important statement. And I think, as, as you're saying, that can be such a, a natural feeling in response to some kind, to, to an event like that. Yeah. And you do have in the poem, like it's not sort of spelled out like that, but like you have decades of no faces other than our own chipping faces. So you have this sense of 
there has been decades of you know the the photos in the house being this way and so you have this huge scope of time suddenly that the the poem is kind of dealing with which also is like another way in which as a poem i think it it's like it's able to grapple with these things in such a unique way in, in the sense that the moment in the past the moment before the past the present and like all of the decades in between can like be co-occurring, you know, at the same time in this poem. I don't know, it's, it's, and that word gradually too, starting off the poem, it's like, oh my God, like, like I think about the way certain sort of difficult topics or things are often represented in like sort of more mainstream media and, you know, and film and TV and stuff. And, you know, often like, suicide is so it's it's represented so heavily on the moment itself or like what led up to the moment like what are the causes you know and and maybe you know the dealing with the immediate aftermath or something you know we go to all of these forms for representation of different experiences and like i think one of the less represented aspects of of these kinds of like traumatic events and also its difficulty to express is like the constancy of of dealing with it right it's like gradually a girl's innocence itself becomes her major crime it's like not like the one thing that did it and then that ruined everything and then it was resolved and now you're okay or something it's like this continual kind of I don't know, hurtling. Yeah, I think that's so right. It's the, There's such a temptation to make that one event the event. And I think there's a temptation in a lot of media or just the way that a lot of media represents it makes it feel like some kind of summation or some kind of either it's like fated to end that way because it's teased at the beginning or as you were saying, it becomes this er event that explains the psychology of a main character or it comes to encompass all of how a certain character is represented. Um, I actually recently watched the HBO documentary, The Weight of Gold, which I assume was meant to coincide with this summer's Olympics. Um, but it's basically about mental health in athletes, which unsurprisingly, when they're pushed to succeed from a very early age and they have one chance every four years in many of these sports to prove it on a global scale and narratives are created around them for the public, about this person is the great gold medal hope of the nation and then they maybe they fulfill it and that's great but then they're watched under incredible scrutiny like michael phelps for every single time he's going to screw up he's on the front page um, and he also feels like he's under immense pressure and he can't go anywhere because everyone recognizes him and it's this whole celebrity issue or there's examples in the documentary of people who had huge hopes pinned on them and then won nothing and everybody's like, oh, what a disappointment. What an underachiever. And it's like, well, he was like fifth. <laughs> That's still elite. It's still great. Um, like he yeah. didn't plan. He didn't try to lose. <laughs> he he wanted to win too. Um, but <laughs> the real point and what this documentary does so effectively is it talks about several different athletes who have either struggled with suicidal ideation or who have died by suicide. And there is one particular person who over the course of the documentary, you eventually learn that they have died by suicide, but they are interviewed just like all the other athletes up until that point. 
So you don't know unless you already extra textually know this person's story. You don't know that's going to happen to them. So what you actually learn about is how they, like all of these other athletes, are struggling with their own mental health and trying to come to terms with how they need to be in the world, coming to better understanding of what their struggles are. And then you find out about two thirds, maybe even more than that through the documentary that this person actually died by suicide and allowing that process to be shown. And for this person to be using the same language as all these other people who are still here creates such a different viewing experience. It's kind of a so-so documentary overall, but that one aspect of it really raises it up in terms of how it's handling its subject matter and how it introduces the topic. And it's exactly what you're describing in terms of using a word like gradually. It's a process. It's ongoing. It's not one event. you know. And it's the same with winning a gold medal. That person has a whole life before that 20 minutes and after. And they also make the point with some of these sports, the difference between first place and eighth in something like speed skating can be tenths of a second. And that's what your entire worth comes down to and whether or not anybody knows who you are. And whether or not you're like fulfilling your childhood potential or not, you know? So yeah, that lens of gradualness and of ongoingness and of a story, you know, a a kind of jumbled narrative, a meaning soup that goes after this issue adds another kind of layer in terms of how the poem is constructed because it's not taking you from a beginning to an end. It is bringing you into a place where this subject is gradually explored and I think that that does a real service to the to the topic. I really agree. It it also makes me think of this other, the last kind of like major aspect of this poem that I really love, which is is kind of a topic that we've talked about probably in a number of of episodes. The way that the South is sort of sort of portrayed or conveyed or articulated or is like pretty interesting in that it reminds me a bit of. When we talked about the poem Private Property by Jenny Shia, which is just a wonderful poem. But one one of the, the kind of aspects of that poem is that there's no first person singular, like there's no I mentioned in the poem. There's an us. And then there's kind of like, you know, the first sentence of that poem is exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first. It's not my body. It's not my lips. And in a similar way with this poem, you know, we have gradually a girl's innocence itself becomes her major crime. And, you know, by the end of the poem, the speaker is probably the girl being referred to. So the speaker is kind of referring to herself in that moment in the first person. And then throughout, there's only one I that happens, which is toward the end, immediately I spotted one hoof print, then nothing. And then there's, you know, there's some we's, so like, and there's some my's, you know, into the disordered evening, which by the way, I just love that phrase beginning into the disorder evening, my brother cut out his only face from every photograph in the hall. So my brother, so we get, we get some of that, but like, there are these other moments where like, you know, like, is it right then that we are left to hurdle alone? The use of we, so the use of the, the plural there, the fact that much of the deer and doe scene does not have the eye, like I see a doe, you know, it's that only happens that one time. One of the kind of problems or the kind of 
things that the poem is grappling with is in the title, which is like family ties and how necessarily foundational family or, you know, whoever you grew up with, those people are to who you are as a person, right? And so there is in some sense, no I without the we. So anyway, what I'm saying is like the way in which the poem shifts its sort of pronouns and the speaker and the, the way the speaker refers to herself sometimes in the third person and uses a lot of first person plural. And then in the deer scenes, like the other aspect for the deer scenes is that it gets you really close to the scene, right? There's no I that's like separating you from the scene, right? Which is sort of similar to how it works in private property where there's no I like in a video game where like the camera's not like hovering above the character as they're like going through the world it's like you're looking through their eyes directly so there's that kind of a visceral immediacy but then there's also this shifting sense of like what is you know is it she is it i is it we especially since there's this family ties and also like this image of orbit and kind of like do you lose what yourself when you lose like someone in your family, a part of yourself or something like that. So I feel like that's another kind of subtle way in which this poem is like really grappling with the sort of big painful questions of its subject um, sort of through the use of, of language and like sort of like formal questions of like perspective and things like that. Should we read it again? I think we should read it again. All right, this is Family Ties by Diana Coy Wen. Gradually, a girl's innocence itself becomes her major crime. A doe and her two fawns bent low in the sumac along the bank of a highway, the pinched peach of their ears twitching in the heat. Into the disordered evening, my brother cut out only his face from every photograph in the hall, carefully slipping each frame back into position. What good does it do? Decades of no faces other than our own chipping faces. What good does it do, this resemblance to nothing we know of the dollhouse? New parents watch their newborn resting in a sunny patch of an empty room, the newborn making sense of its container. And from the road, a deer ripened in death and a tuft of fur or dandelion tumbled along, gently circled, driftwood, shaking loose, gathered, dissolving into the mouths of jewelweed nearby. Earth is rife with iron and blood is rich in stardust. Immediately, I spotted one hoofprint, then nothing, as if this was where she dragged herself out of the body strips of tire torn from their orbit. Is it right then that we are left to hurdle alone? So, Connor. So, Jack. So, uh, what have you been reading, watching, listening to? What, uh, what... Hot new recs have you got for moi and our audience at large? 
Well, Jack, I've been watching some TV because it's very cold in Minnesota and there's really not much to do. And this show has been very delightful for me. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. I have not. Jack hasn't seen it. Oh my God, this never happens. Wow. Okay. I think it's very fun. Sarita found it, I'm pretty sure. And it's about Zoe, who is a kind of, you know, rising star in a Silicon Valley type company called SparkPoint. And it's sort of like company itself is a BS, but she has this ability to basically read people's emotional states. But the way that she does it is like, they basically break out into song and and basically start doing a musical number of like a pop like a pop song through the years but it's like wherever they're at emotionally so you know come to talk with you again but no one else it's like just happens in the normal course of day so like she's just like watching it and then everyone else is just doing their own business and it's very fun to me and it's also very poignant at times because one of the in the first it's in the second season now but her father has has a brain disease and it it's sort of slowly getting worse and so a lot of it revolves around dealing with that not wanting to deal with that um and but anyway it's like i personally love musicals but the the form of the musical has been moved to the screen in ways that are at times not super fun or a little cheesy. And this is definitely like cheesy, but I don't know. I, I, uh, it's fun. I just think it's fun. The music's good. How about you, Jack? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? How are you getting through these days? Oh boy. I have been getting through the days. So it hasn't been quite as cold here in Vermont. It was for like two days, but we got over it. Uh, in a way that it sounds like Minnesota has not and will not for quite a while. But it's been cold and snowy and stuff, so I've also been indoors and finding ways to, like, keep warm. One great musical-related thing is that I found out about the newsletter Flow State, which sends you, uh, like, good background music to work to. You get a new email every weekday except for Tuesday, and it's just, like, nice, cool, instrumental stuff. And I've been watching, yeah, like, I guess it's sort of TV, except it's on YouTube, the radical TV for cool kids. <laughs> um, the PBS Digital Studios channel Eons, which has all sorts of great information about <laughs> past eras, which is pretty cool. Um, everything from, like, the Titanoboa, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a massive snake to where did flowers come from and what are eons anyway turns out there have been four of them i can name them now because of watching so much eons there have been four eons precisely yes the hadean archean proterozoic and phanerozoic eons oh wow yeah there's also there was a stretch of time that <laughs> professionals in the fields call the boring billion because <laughs> Nothing happened on Earth for over a billion years, oh, which is like, I can't even begin to think about what that means, but it's, so... it's something I learned from Eons. So check out Eons on YouTube. It's pretty cool. And on the pop front, driver's license all day. 
can't get enough of that song. It's a great song by Olivia Rodrigo, but it is also wrapped up in teen drama drama. That is a whole other situation. And it's great. Oh, how do you... Oh. Because it's a driver's license. Oh, like cars. I got my driver's license last week Just like we always talked about Cause you were so excited for me To finally drive up to your house But today I drove through the suburbs Crying cause you weren't around So yeah, that's driver's license and it's amazing. There's this awesome thing that's happening and it has been for a little bit with like Gen Z musicians and popular music right now Mm -hmm. where the kind of low key hyper earnest stuff that I really respond to in Bruce Springsteen's music is now back in pop with a whole generation (laughs) of new people. Like this song and the Bruce Springsteen song, Stolen Car, are like, this is the teenage woman version of that man in his 30s oh my gosh it's like it's all there it's like yeah it's big time yeah so anyway driver's license also in heavy rotation i have not heard the word suburbs said that earnestly before you're right i mean i know it's 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 a bold lyrical choice that i think works for for the song I've I've cried driving through the suburbs before. I get it. Yeah. Who hasn't, you know, driven through the suburbs crying because you weren't around? Woo. Mm. It's good Only stuff. We're Olivia around. Rodrigo speaking to our hearts. Yes. Guess you didn't mean what you wrote in that song about me. Cause you said forever now I drive around past your 